to this audio edition of Philip Pusher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparola. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, February 15th through Sunday the 18th feature guest conductor Pavel Yervi joined by cellist Shekukani Mason. The program includes Beethoven's Leonora Overture No. 3 with Shekukani Mason, cello concerto by Sir Edward Elgar, and after intermission, Carl Nielsen's Symphony No. 5. Here are Philip Pusher's program notes on Elgar's Cello Concerto, a work lasting about 26 minutes. This is the last major work Elgar wrote. Alice Elgar was at her husband's side at the first performance in October 1919, but her health was not good, and when she died the following April, part of Elgar's creative spark died with her. During the remaining 14 years of his life, he wrote no music of consequence, despite intermittent attempts and sporadic frustration. Elgar also was ill at this time. He had been suffering from serious throat problems, and in March 1918, he had a septic tonsil removed. The day he left the nursing home, he asked for pencil and paper and wrote down the opening theme of this cello concerto. Most of the work on the concerto was done during the summer of 1919 in Brinkwells, the little oak-beamed cottage the Elgars rented in Sussex. There was a studio in the garden where he could work uninterrupted, except by his own walks in the woods and by the unexpected delight of chopping firewood. Alice, meanwhile, grew mysteriously smaller and more fragile, Elgar remembered. She seemed to be fading away before one's very eyes. It was their last summer together. Elgar asked Felix Salmon to give the first performance of the new concerto, and he invited him to Brinkwells that summer so they could work together. Elgar delivered the finished score to his publisher on August 8th. The premiere was scheduled at once with Elgar conducting, but it proved to be somewhat of a disappointment. The concerto was insufficiently rehearsed, not because its demands were excessive, but because the conductor of the balance of the concert, Albert Coates, openly preferred the other work on the program, Scriabin's Poem of Ecstasy, and used all the rehearsal time for it. The response to Elgar's concerto was downright chilly. The audience was caught off guard by music so private and poignant, particularly in a virtuoso concerto. Elgar's cello concerto is a rich and noble work. Designed as two pairs of movements, it opens boldly with a short and volatile recitative for the solo cello. The violas then introduce an elegiac theme, long and flowing, which the cello cannot resist. The balance of the movement is broad and lyrical. The second movement is a quicksilver scherzo. The cello introduces a new theme hesitantly at first and then takes off, carrying the rest of the movement with it. The passionate and expansive adagio is the heart of the piece. The orchestra is pared down so that the solo cello can sing freely above it, and it does so in all but one measure. The finale is large and varied. It begins, like the concerto itself, with a recitative for the cello. Though much of what follows is spirited, there is still an underlying tone of sadness, and near the end, when Elgar is tying things up, the cello recalls a single heartbreaking phrase from the adagio that casts a long shadow over the remaining pages. Finally, the cello interjects its very first phrase, and the orchestra sweeps to a conclusion.
on August 5, 1920, only months after Alice's death, and a little more than a year after the premiere of the cello concerto, Elgar wrote, I am lonely now and do not see music in the old way and cannot believe that I shall complete any new work. Sketches I still make, but there is no inducement to finish anything. Ambition, I have none. He did make a few transcriptions for full orchestra of music by Bach, Handel, and Chopin, and wrote a handful of occasional pieces over the years, a fanfare, music for a carillon. But the important music that still occupied him off and on, he left unfinished. The Spanish Lady, an opera taken from Ben Jonson's The Devil is an Ass, a piano concerto, and a third symphony commissioned by the BBC, all were left in sketches. Shortly before his death, he asked that his third symphony be left alone, incomplete, and unplayable. Elgar had never taken composition pupils, and despite the magnitude of his success, he had not fostered a new school of composition. When he died in February 1934, he left behind a daughter, Clarice, but in the larger historical sense, there were no immediate survivors. Program notes by Philip Huscher on Elgar's Cello Concerto. And now on to Carl Nielsen's Symphony No. 5, a work lasting about 35 minutes. Carl Nielsen's father, a house painter, played the violin. As a young boy, Carl worked earnestly to master his father's three-quarter size fiddle until the day he spotted an upright mahogany piano in his uncle's house. He marveled at the individual notes set, quote, in a long shining row before my eyes. Not only could I hear them, I could see them, he later remembered. His romance with the violin cooled temporarily in favor of the piano with its long expanse of keys. But by the time he entered the Copenhagen Conservatory in 1884 as a scholarship student, the violin was his chosen instrument. After graduating two years later, he supported himself by playing violin at the Tivoli Gardens, and in 1899, he joined the Royal Orchestra. Nielsen's earliest known composition, other than those he made up as a three-year-old playing melodies on different sizes of logs from the woodpile outside his house, was a polka for violin. His father, never suspecting the direction his son's music would take, complained that it was too syncopated. Most of his first works were scored for string instruments. Even before entering the conservatory, he composed several string quartets, a violin sonata, and a duet for two violins, all still unpublished. His official, Opus 1, is A Little Suite for Strings, written in 1888. That same year, he also composed a string quintet. Then, in 1892, with hardly any experience writing for orchestra, Nielsen completed his first symphony. He had tried to compose a symphony in 1888, but gave up after one movement. Although the work is wild and uneven, one reviewer compared Nielsen to a child playing with dynamite, it reveals many of the hallmarks of the composer's mature and highly individual style, a driving rhythmic energy and an original sense of harmonic progression, and suggests that Nielsen was a born symphonist. For the next three decades, as he slowly turned out five more symphonies, this appeared to be his ideal medium. 
It was Nielsen's third symphony, the so-called Sinfonia Espansiva, written in 1910 and 1911, that was the breakthrough, his first work that reveals greatness rather than promise. And it was his fourth, the inextinguishable, composed during World War I, that came the closest to giving him a runaway success. It's still the most often performed of the six symphonies. His fifth symphony, premiered six years after the fourth, is arguably his greatest work in the form. The Fifth Symphony has no subtitle, but its subject is familiar Nielsen territory. As Nielsen said in a newspaper interview published the day of the premiere, My first symphony was nameless too, but then came the Four Temperaments, Espansiva, and the Inextinguishable. Actually, just different names for the same thing. The only thing that music can express when all is said and done, the resting powers as opposed to the active ones. If I were to find a name for this, my new fifth symphony, it would express something similar. Although Nielsen failed to find a suitable title, the one word that is at the same time characteristic and not too pretentious, the music itself clearly defines a drama of energy and release. When pressed, Nielsen suggested the image of a stone being rolled up a hill where it lies still, the energy is tied up in it, and then kick down the other side. After writing four symphonies divided into the four standard movements, here Nielsen opts for a two-part design. The first, which begins slowly and calmly, and the second, more active. Nielsen wasn't yet done with traditional symphonic form. His sixth and final symphony reverts to a four-movement layout. Both of Nielsen's two movements are further subdivided into contrasting sections. The first movement begins uncertainly with wandering wind melodies over static obsessive string figures. It turns more sinister, pounding timpani and an insistent snare drum add to the Hitchcock-like suspense. And then it dissolves into a spacious, heartfelt adagio. The snare drum returns with even greater force at the climax of the adagio, nearly upstaging the entire orchestra. It's one of Nielsen's signature confrontations, like the Battle of the Timpani in The Inextinguishable. The second movement is more impetuous, with a number of gear shifts along the way. It never loses momentum, even when it slows down for a gentle andante episode, and it never lacks energy. In Nielsen's works, the conflict between keys and the ultimate journey away from home base creates the drama of each piece. Many of his symphonies, like some of Mahler's, don't end in the key with which they begin. As Robert Simpson, the composer's biographer, writes, Nielsen believed that a sense of achievement is best conveyed by the firm establishment of a new key in contrast to the policy of composers from Bach to Shostakovich. In the Fifth Symphony, the harmonic itinerary is unusually ambitious. The piece begins ambiguously, and Nielsen takes his time settling on F major as his starting point. The second movement opens in B major, the opposite side of the harmonic world, technically. It's as far removed from F major as possible, and it ends in E flat major a key scarcely touched in the opening movement. The entire symphony is a grand adventure, a drama of glimpsed horizons, circuitous routes, and unexpected destinations. Program notes by Philip Husher on Carl Nielsen's Symphony No. 5.
My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.